Uh, The Apostle Paul's eyes are on Jesus as we consider our scripture verses this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading the uh, entire chapter. I don't have any slides, so if you want to follow along with me, you can turn to page 843 in your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, just take it and put your name in it and uh, receive it as a gift from us. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, as we uh, conclude a series that we've been in on the uh, second letter of Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Uh, Some time ago, Sarah and I saw a movie called um, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and it was... uh, in, in that movie, Tom Hanks played a character who was trapped on uh, one of the towers, and uh, time was running out, and he kept calling home to, to get a message through, okay? And the urgency in his voice uh, increased with each message. And I want you to think about the urgency of a of a father communicating an important message to his son as we read these verses. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he has strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth. I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get her before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is God's word. Could you feel the urgency there? The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's in a Roman prison, which means he's pretty much stuck in a dungeon. It's really not much better than just a a, a 20-foot hole in the ground with a grate over it. And he's been tried for crimes against the empire by that maniac Nero who is on a persecution binge against God's people. He's got the Apostle Paul in his sights. And Paul knows that his days are numbered. He knows that his execution is imminent. He knows he's not going to get out of this alive It's amazing when you know the end is near that life just comes down to simplicities like get the cloak. (laughs) It's cold in here. Winter's coming. And, and, you know, can you get me something to read? I need some parchment, some scrolls. And and Timothy, come. Just come. I want to see you one last time. It's amazing, isn't it? When you know your days are numbered, life gets very, very simple. And Paul knows his days are numbered. This is why he says in verse 6, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. Paul gives us some word pictures from the uh, Olympic Games, the offerings and libations that were offered as a part of the games. And Paul knows that his life right now is being poured out. And he says it in the passive voice, I'm being poured out as if God himself is holding the vessel of Paul's life and is pouring Paul's life out, meaning that Paul's not not frantic. Paul knows that his life is in the hand of God. Paul knows that God gets to determine whether he lives or whether he dies. It's not his life. He's a servant of the Lord. God is still sovereignly in control, and this is God's will. My life is already being poured out and my departure is at hand and then Paul says in verse 7 he says I fought the good fight I finished the race I've kept the faith all he's not changing metaphors here he's still focused on the Olympic games here where he says I have fought the good fight think of it this way I have competed in the good competition I've, I've contested a good contest I fought the good fight. Ah, fought, fight. The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and we get our word agony from that word fight. I have agonized the good agony, Paul says. I finished the race, and I've kept the faith. 
referring back to chapter 2, verse 5, when Paul says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. I have kept the rules of the faith. I've done no cheating, no doping. I've played fair and square. And I'm done. I'm done. And so he writes this last letter to Timothy to first of all tell him he would like things like cloaks and parchments in his very own presence and company before he's executed. That's one reason why he writes, do your best to come to me quickly. There's some urgency there. But then he writes for another reason. Paul says, I'm done with my race, but Timothy, you're not done. You're not done. Your race is not over. It's not over. I hear that a lot in my exercise class. You're not done, Randy. Pick it up. Let's go. You're not done. And so Paul has written to his spiritual son in the faith. He says to Timothy, my dear son. He's written him this, this dear son because he wants Timothy. He says, Timothy, you have got to, you've got to light it up. You have got to, to uh, uh, kindle the gift of leadership and teaching that God has given you and you have got to draw on the power and strength of God and you need to endure hardship. You need to stay above it all. Keep your head, uh, keep your head uh, in, in all situations. You need to finish the race. You need to be bold and unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you need to do the work that God has set out for you to do and run the race that he wants you to run. You're not done. You know, I think more than just Timothy needs to hear that. I need to hear that. I need someone to come alongside. I need a voice in my life that says, Bolting House, you're not done. Endure hardship. Do the work in evangelist. Keep your head in all situations. Run the race that God wants you to run. Run the race, your race. Do you ever think of your life as a race? That's the noun, not the verb. Often we feel like we race. We race from this place to this place to this place to this place to this place, not knowing if we're ever accomplishing anything. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the race, the agony, the competition, your race. What's your race? Your race is why you do what you do. Your race, is, your race is your reason for life. Your race is why you get up in the morning and go to work and why you prospect the clients and why you prepare the lessons so you can teach the students. Your race is why you uh, do your uh, homework and, and take the exams so that you can get your degree, so that you can get the job, so that you can provide for your family. Your, ra- your race is your reason for living. You take away the race, you've taken away your reason for life. What's your race? What's your race? And since Paul is talking about good races and good competitions and good agonies, then there must be bad races and bad competitions and bad, bad agonies. Then, then, okay, so what's the difference between a good race and a bad race? And this is where Paul reminds Timothy, here's what makes a good race a good race. It's the bullseye of this passage. It's verse 8. Paul says, the only race that counts, the race that God wants you to run in, 
the only race that matters is the one that leads to the crown. Verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The only race that counts is the one that leads to the crown, the crown of righteousness. Now what's that? What's the crown of righteousness? Well, that's what we've been learning in 2 Timothy See, the crown crown of righteousness is the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1. The crown of righteousness comes from the God who uh, saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's chapter 1, verse 9. The crown of righteousness is the guarantee in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Ultimately, church family, the crown of righteousness is not something that you earn. It's something that has already been earned for you by someone else, our king, the righteous judge, Jesus That's what's behind verse 8, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, that day. Two small words, but they're big. That day. That day shows up three times in 2 Timothy. Uh, It shows up in chapter 1, verse 12. I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to Guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. That day shows up in chapter 1, verse 18, concerning the faithful ministry of this brother in Christ, Onesiphorus, who was most likely martyred because he came to serve Paul in Rome when Nero was persecuting the Christians. Paul says, may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day And then we see it again in chapter 4, verse 8. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That day. We don't live for today. We live for that day. You ever just figured out, you know, when you go outside, you read the papers and you say, you know, something's wrong with this world. Something's not right. This is, this, this is just something's messed up. Something's, something's messed up with this world. And then you look in the mirror and say, well, something's messed up with me too. Something's messed up. And, and, and it's like there's this longing for this world that's not messed up. You ever long for that? I do. I, you know, and so what this longing, look, if, if you thirst, then doesn't that mean that there must be water? If you hunger, doesn't that mean food exists? And and if if you see the brokenness of this world and you long and you hunger for a world that is whole and complete and perfect and restored, then guess what? Such a world exists. And that world will commence on that day. That day when in the new heavens and the new earth, the true emperor, the righteous judge, Jesus himself, will rest his imperishable, perfect crown upon 
the heads of his faithful people. On that day, Jesus will crown us with his crown. On that day, we will reign with Jesus in imperishable bodies, in a, in a state of perfect and complete and permanent righteousness, and we will worship and serve Jesus forever and ever to his glory. On that day, every thought of mine will be a pure thought. I am so tired of thinking impure thoughts. I'm so tired of having a guilty conscience. On that day, every word will be complete and perfect. I am so tired of having to apologize to my wife and the staff for inappropriate words. And on that day, we will have complete and perfect and pure deeds. I'm so tired of half-baked deeds. On that day, I long for that day. And the beauty and the glory of the Christian faith is that God's people wear the crown of righteousness because God's son wore the crown of thorns. The the beauty of the Christian faith says is that we give Jesus our sin and he gives us his righteousness. That's the, we give Jesus our F and not even an F. What's an F? 59. Well, I didn't even have that. We have zero. And Jesus gives us his A+. Plus. <laughs> that's grace. That's grace. People say, well, that's, that's not fair. You're right. It's grace. Grace is beyond fair. And grace is the race that God wants me to run because it is the race that leads to the imperishable crown of the righteous judge. The race that God wants me to run is the one that makes Jesus the single motivating factor for everything I think and say and do and feel. That's the race God wants me to run. The race that God wants me to run is the race in which I wouldn't even think about doing anything except to glorify Christ in my home and at work and with God's people. The race that God wants me to run helps me see that the hardships of today, whatever hardships you face, when we focus on that day and run toward that day, those hardships, whatever they are, are light and momentary compared to the thick, dense, weighty glory of that day. We live for that day. Now that's a good race. That's a good race. Were it the only race, Second Timothy would be much shorter. You know, if, the, if that were the only race running, then Paul would say, Timothy, come before winter. Love you, Paul. But did you know that there are competing races? There's, there's alternative races. Races that threaten your faith. Races that are self-centered, self-focused, focused on the kingdom of me, those kinds of races. Races run by stubborn competitors of the gospel. Races that appear which, which threaten your faith because they, are, because they are attractively irrelevant. 
attractively irrelevant. See, that's the, that's the greatest threat to your faith is not that you would run in another race and lose, but that, that you would win what amounts to an irrelevant race. You pour your life and your blood into a race that in the bottom line really doesn't matter or doesn't count. That's the saddest life. And that's what we see here in chapter 4. That's why verses 3 and 4 uh, say, For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That's who Timothy is up against in the city of Ephesus. The pressure to quit Christ and conform to this world is crushing because on the one hand, there are false teachers who are lovers of self, lovers of money. Look at chapter three, verses one through five. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So you have those kinds of teachers and then you put them with listeners who have diseased ears, itchy ears, waiting to be told anything but the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear and and to suit their own desires. And I can't help but ask some questions when I read these verses. Like, how prone am I, how prone are we to reject truth to suit our own desires? What faculty have you hired right now to staff your university of you? You founded a university. It's called the university of you. And you've hired faculty. You've granted them tenure. Why? Well, because they agree with you. They affirm you. They support you. They give you perfect marks. They give you straight A's. And they don't make you do any homework. Why wouldn't you want to go to this school? The faculty says it's all about you, your wants, your desires, your happiness. You matter most in the university of you. And Paul says that's a bad race. That's a bad race. And I don't know what that looks like in your world. I know what it looks like in my world. (laughs) So this week, you know, we get stuff in the mail, and so I got some stuff in the mail. I've got an article, which you're going to love. It's titled, How to Create, Build, and Monetize Pastoral Fame. Now work with me on this. You can help me. I'm serious. You, the article says, you see or hear about pastoral celebrities and you wonder how they got to the top. Well, here, the article has a fame formula to create success beyond all imagining. And it's in four easy steps. Pastor seeking this sort of fame can build a great platform by focusing on four areas. Number one, he needs a professional online presence for himself, his message, and his activities. Something about him. 
Number two, he should definitely write a book because Americans elevate authors to a special status. It will open doors to speaking and the media that require author status for admission. Okay? Thirdly, he should train and practice to become a professional speaker. The fees can be amazing. I'm not making this up. The fees can be amazing, and effective communicators are rare and always in demand. Professional speaking can be learned and mastered surprisingly quickly. (laughs) Which is why they're rare and always in demand. (laughs) I share this with our staff. Is this a joke? This is a joke. This is not you know, Mad Magazine. I mean, this, this is a d- July issue of Church Executive. I mean, it's a magazine targeted to, to people like me. Oh, I forgot the fourth one. He should familiarize himself with how to capture and keep the media spotlight, so don't turn that off. <laughs> hey. And, you know, it's like, oh, no, come on, really? Really? Well, well, well this, is, this is for God's glory. This is for evangelism. Wait a minute. If it is, then why was it subtitled, A Blueprint for Achieving the Kind of Life and Career Enjoyed by Society's Super Elite? <laughs> I, I, I said to Mike Simmons, our administrative minister, I said, I mean, we're not actually paying for the subscription, are we? I mean, and so, and then I found out in the, the magazine itself that the subscription is free, and at that, I think it's still too much. <laughs> I, I, when I read this, I was like, uh, and then kind of, you know, threw it away, and then I thought, no, I can use this, <laughs> you know? That's a bad race. Okay, and, and, and you know what? Uh, we have a website, and you know we have a Facebook presence. The church does, and uh, you know I've sent out e devotionals and booklets, and so I, you know I'm not I, I'm, I'm not here to want to burn the marketers at the stake. Okay, this is not what this is about. It. it it's, a, it's about what's a good race and what's a bad race. And this is a bad race. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, a part of this repulses me, but a part of this is going, what would that be like? What would that be like? How would that sound? Huh. Best-selling author, Dr. Randall A. Boltinghouse, writes best-selling book, Humility and How I Attained It. I, I just... <laughs> You know, think. Just as you know, there's, there's just enough, there's enough buzz in here to make you intoxicated. See, and the fact of the matter is, in this country of over three hundred thousand local churches, there's probably going to be one pastor that's going to want to pursue this. And the tragedy is not going to be if they fail, but if they succeed. 
because they will, will succeed in having run a race that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. I mean, I mean, I mean think about it. Think about it for just a moment here. <laughs> okay, let's say that the books are written for all of the right reasons, all right? What, 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 what will happen? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of on this Sherlock Holmes kick. So I saw you know, a couple of the Sherlock Holmes movies, and then I think, you know, I've never read any of Conan Doyle's books themselves. I, I, I want to do that. I think I'll do that, maybe spend some summer doing that. So, so I thought, well, I wonder which one I'll read. Well, I have a Kindle, and I found out that I can get all of his books, all of them, on my Kindle for 99 cents. So there, when you're as good as he was, a hundred years from now, everything you've written will be worth 99 cents. You just won a 99-cent crown. There it is. What crown are you going after? You going after an imperishable crown, or are you going after a crown that ultimately is not even going to be worth a buck? 99 pennies, see. And, And I'll tell you this much. It's either one or the other. It's either, the, it's either the imperishable crown or it's the 99-cent crown. Which one are you going after? Which one are you going after, huh? Well, Paul says, Timothy, listen, listen. the race that God wants you to run is after a crown that's not worth 99 cents. It's Christ's crown, the crown of righteousness for that day. And, and so then Paul ends his letter with a, with a roster of people who basically are running. You know, there's two groups here in this roster, verses 9 to 22. Those who are running bad races, the 99-cent crown races, that's, that's Demas, verse 9, evil, because he loved this world, has deserted me. And then there's Alexander the metal worker. We see him in the book of Acts there in Ephesus when he caused that riot. Paul says he did me a great deal of harm. Watch out for him too. Those are those are. Runners running bad races, but then, oh, Paul gives this healthy roster of good racers. Crescens, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Priscilla, Aquila, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Putin's Linus, uh, Claudia. You, you know what I'm seeing here? I'm seeing a community of faithful racers. And here's the point. You never fight the good fights and you never run the good races all by yourself. You weren't meant to run those by yourself. God wants you to run them uh, in a community. You're never alone. The Lord will be with you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. The Holy Scriptures will guide you. And the people of God will accompany you. Look at those names. Look at this roster. You know what? Had we lived back then, your names could be here. Because we're together in this. Our vision is not to have a cavernous center filled with individual people. That's not our vision. Our vision is a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ, a community of transformed lives, a community where people can come here 
who would like to run, but they can't now because they're hurt and they're limping in. It's all they could do to get in here. That's fine. This is a place where you can heal. A community of hope. Hope that's grounded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My gospel, Paul says, chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, seed of David. That's our gospel. That's all we have to offer here. All we have to offer is Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the promised Messiah. That's it. And that's sufficient. And we're also a community of truth. You've not come to a place where you're going to get your ears scratched. You're going to hear truth. And some days it's going to be tender truth. And some days it's going to be tough truth. And some of you need to hear tender truth today because you're hurting and you need to heal. And some of you need some tough truth because you're about to make a really stupid decision in your life. What race are you running? We pass these out here. I suppose some would say, well, this is kind of gimmicky. But you know what? Listen, I want you to think. I want you to think. What event are you running? What crown are you pursuing? Is it a 99-cent crown? Or is it an everlasting crown? What is it? You know, maybe you're the kind of tactile person that you need to write down what race you're running. And now's the time for you to do that. Right now. Take that pen and say, God, I mean, here's the race I'm running. What's your race? Paul ran his. And if one scholar is correct, there came a day when the Roman soldiers put him in shackles and he was escorted out of that dungeon, out of the gates of that stone wall that surrounded Rome, and he was marched past the Pyramid of Cestius. It's still there today. And there was a squadron that guarded him, and one of the soldiers carried an axe. And uh, when the citizens of Rome saw that, they knew what was going to happen. Here, this muddy, dirty man in shackles is being marched out. And he was marched out three miles outside the city on the Ostian Way. And he was uh, put up for a night in a small, tiny cell there. And then the next morning, they ripped the shirt off his back, tied him to a stump of a post, and they beat him again. And then with one swift swing, with the flash of an axe, Paul went home. He had fought the good fight. He had finished the race. And he had kept the faith. What's your race, church family? The only race that counts is the one that leads to the crown. Shall we pray?